Policies of Exclusion, Poverty, and Health, Stories from the Front, compiled with introduction and reports by Crystal Ocean. Copyright 2005, Wise Group. Stories. Episode 3, Anna. I decided to get involved in this project because I need to be realistic, honest, and open about my own struggles with poverty. I was born and raised in poverty. I was affected by poverty. I'm still living in poverty. Being involved with WISE is to help me deal with that realization and to admit that I am also one of those many women out there who are affected by poverty. It is a tough admission. It is. It bothers me as a person who advocates for equality and equal rights and equal opportunity. I was born in St. Lucia into the poverty created as a result of colonization. I lived in a segregated part of the island. In the 70s, my family struggled just to put food on the table. We had no running water, no electricity, and no ready-made appliances such as a cooking stove. At eight years old, I had to fend for myself. I dug the soil for yams, fetched water, hand-washed my clothes at the river, and cooked my own meals over the open flame. With my mother working day and night, we saw little of each other. She was gone by the time I rose, and I was asleep by the time she got home. By eleven years old, I was working to help my family cultivate bananas, attending school three days a week, without the required textbooks, fishing in the ocean, and going to church. These hardships secured us a better lifestyle, a three-bedroom home, running water, electricity, appliances, some clothing, and one or two pairs of shoes. There were still sacrifices. If my shoes were damaged, I walked for miles barefoot. While I had fun moments, my life was exhausting. By twelve years old, I knew that my mother could not ensure me a better future. All she dreamed and hoped for herself, as well as for me, was to be a good Christian. In spite of the lack of financial stability and future security, faithfully and religiously she donated money to the church. In my opinion, her oppressing belief system deprived me of a stable environment. This realization helped shape my determination for economic, social, and educational success. I did not want to remain deprived and uneducated. The idea of moving to Canada came about when I met Ms. X, a Canadian-born woman with a St. Lucian mother. During her stay in St. Lucia, Ms. X needed childcare for her two young children. Our deal was that I would live and work with her. Upon her trip back to Canada two years later, she would sponsor me and provide me with a free plane ticket. In the meantime, she would give me an allowance and enroll me into night school, which she would pay for. My auntie thought this would be a good opportunity. I agreed. At 13 years old, I dropped out of elementary school and moved in with Ms. X. Two years came and went. I never saw inside a classroom. I never got any allowance. On the few occasions I visited my family, I brought the children with me. The younger child called me mummy because he thought I was really his mother. I had a strong bond with them, so for the children's sake as well as my own, I remained hopeful. 
I wanted to believe that I really was going to get a plane ticket from Canada after Ms. X returned home. After they left for Canada, I was still waiting for the plane ticket. As a result, I decided to make my own way. I worked in a grocery store and saved some money, but to come up with $1,800 for the plane ticket was nearly impossible. To make this trip a reality, my family lent me the little money they had. I applied for my first passport, and a few weeks later, I left on a jet plane for Canada. Before I left my country, it was arranged that Ms. X would meet me at the airport in Toronto. Indeed, traveling for the first time was very scary. I was afraid that Canadian immigration would not permit me entry, and I was not convinced that Ms. X would keep her word. Ms. X did meet me at the airport. After all, she was going to benefit because I would be her free babysitter. In exchange, she would take full responsibilities for me. On our way from the airport, she asked me to pay for the taxicab. During my first three months in Canada, I lived in a two-bedroom apartment with Ms. X, her mother, sister, and the two children. We were fed and supported by her mother's small income. Ms. X had no job, but was never around to help with the household tasks. By December of that year, Ms. X's mother was growing impatient. Ms. X had reconciled with her husband and was moving to Windsor, and I was going to be sent back to St. Lucia. At fifteen, I thought that choosing to live in Canada was simply a matter of choice. Accordingly, I chose Canada and stayed. I was an illegal alien living underground for almost eight years. Until I became a landed immigrant, I had no rights. I was not eligible to go to school, engage in employment, get health coverage, receive financial assistance, or live in decent housing. I even had to create a false identity. I had to work for little, if any, pay. For example, immediately after I left the situation with Ms. X, I lived with a Trinidadian family in Toronto. I would do babysitting and housekeeping in exchange for room and board. I was exploited, used, recycled, and used some more. Becoming a landed immigrant was a dream come true. Finally freedom, I thought. I got my high school diploma, did a one-year nursing program, and worked four years in the nursing field. In September 2000, my children and I moved to B.C. Born and raised in the Caribbean, I can identify with the poverty Haiti goes through. I didn't have to go into the garbage dumps and scramble for food. I was able to go to the banana tree and cut a bunch of bananas, or dig the soil and get yams, or pick a fresh mango from the tree. But pain is pain. If our lives are threatened from living out of the dumpster or from having to stand on the streets of Vancouver to do prostitution, that's still pain. The difference with North America is that poverty is hidden. We can live in an apartment and in a house or in a setting where we can mask that poverty. People really don't take the time to get to know you, to know how you're struggling. People in the community, they've stopped supporting each other, and the village no longer raises the child. The student loans are not enough to pay the rent. 
which this month I scrambled every single penny to pay. There was nothing left, not even for cat food. For two days the cats were meowing at me. Yesterday I got a check in the mail from GST. My family and I literally kissed that check, because it meant we could have some groceries. It's just unbelievable. We have a little bit of land space. We cut the grass and rototill the land. We have a nice little square area where we grow vegetables. It's all in a bush because there's not enough space for everything to grow. For the fifteen years of my life in Canada, this is the first time that I've owned a garden. I am very much enjoying it because it reminds me of how I was raised. It was natural for every family member to have their own little patch of land to grow their own fruits and vegetables. Here, people without gardens must go to grocery stores. That's how the corporations have taken over. It used to be that people would make cherry pies or vegetable dishes or whatever. They were able to sell that to the neighbors, and they would survive that way. Now there are all types of liability issues and insurance and licensing. When you look at all these big manufacturers, what are they doing but making that very same pie and earning millions and billions in revenue and profit? They've managed to take away the very essence of life in terms of how we survive and turned it into a multi-billion dollar business. The pie that we get at the grocery store now is less nutritious and has no value and no meaning. In fact, we cannot afford the pie anymore. I started a business two years ago. To me, being in business is about stability, security, knowing that I will have enough money to someday own my own home, being able to drive a stable vehicle, and to put clothes on my children's backs to feed them. A solid-based, profitable business will give me enough financial stability and some type of power where I can influence my life and the lives of other people around me. I am at the point where I'm realizing that conducting business in North American society is very much different from the society I was born and raised in. If we want to start a business in my country, you get your supplies and whatever else and you're able to set up. You're able to start selling and people will support you. When it comes to the liabilities and legalities of it, we don't have to worry about putting 20000 to $30,000 into starting a business. We don't have to worry about all this liability insurance, these permits, that licensing. We don't have to worry about how the competition will react or is doing better or how we need to select our target market group or do adequate promotions and marketing and sales and advertisement strategies. We don't have to worry about writing 25 to 30 page business plans, financials. All this nonsense is basically another way to oppress people. By the time you've acquired all those licenses and other added expenses, you're looking at 30000 to $40,000 just to get a small business off the ground, and there's no guarantee that you'll make back your return in even a year. In my society, you can start a business with 500 to $1,000 and get a return on investment right away. Having been raised in poverty, I do not have 30000 or $40,000, but unless you have 20000 or 30000 in owner's equity or some type of asset, you basically cannot get a loan.
in classes, for example, a FutureCorp program where we would be getting our financial plans and our business plans done, I've sat beside people whose parents have loaned them $20,000 or $30,000. They're able to be in business the next day. I have struggled to do the market research, to test the market, to introduce the product line to show that it's a viable business concept, to determine that there is a market niche for my products and services, to put in my own money to promote and market my business, and to take an advanced business management program. I've gone all those extra steps and I'm still hearing the same thing. Because I don't have assets or equity, I cannot be eligible for a traditional loan. What to do now? I was speaking with one of the agencies that loans money to small businesses and entrepreneurs. I said, I have done everything that you've asked me to do in terms of the hoops I have to jump through, and you're still telling me that I'm not eligible for funding. If I were a Caucasian woman who walked in here with $30,000, with no business background, with no business management skills, would I be getting the money for my business? Yes. I asked, are there any more resources that may be of help to me? I was referred to the Disability Resource Center. Now with the DRC, I have to prove that I have a disability. It means I have to revisit my past. I have to go back 10 years into my life and dredge up some kind of traumatic stress syndrome to be qualified for some type of disability. They are sending a five-page form to my family doctor to confirm that I have a disability. That's a violation of my human rights, having to play a victim role. I shouldn't be put in the position of having to revisit any illness from 10 to 15 years ago and show how it still affects me today. Whether or not it does, it shouldn't be a basis and foundation for me getting funding. Then, they're not prepared to tell me how long the process will take, nor am I guaranteed funding by going through all these hoops. Also, when it boils down to it, it's one community agency in the Valley that is making the decisions, whether it be for traditional loans, or for disability loans, or any type of entrepreneurial loan. That's FutureCorp. On top of that, if and when I were to get into the program, I would still have to once again go through all the, the criteria, six or seven steps. I've done all of that. Market research, surveys, business plan, financials, promotions. I am already at the final step. I have a business management diploma. So why should they force me to do the seven steps over again? To retrain. When I first got involved in FutureCorp, the first program I did with them cost me $1,500. I had to pay for it. With a lot of these programs, if you're not in the system, you're not eligible. If you're not a welfare recipient, you can't get in. If you're not on EI, you can't get in. No matter which way you go, you're blocked. It's unnecessary hardship. It's unnecessary hassle. The very same agencies that are there to help people are, in fact, oppressing people by making them go through one hoop after another.
It's like going through a maze. You enter, you go in one way, before you know it, you're lost and you can't get out. A lot of these people are not able to think outside of the box, nor does the system encourage them to do so. Our cat adopted us. This cat lived in my complex where I lived before, and that cat walked around for months unfed and unkept. Everyone else assumed that the cat was kept by someone else, that it belonged to someone else. That's the same attitude towards the community. That's the same mentality of us living next door to people, and we don't know who they are. We treat them like animals, assuming that they are fed and kept and cared for, and that they have a family to belong to. Although poor, I take pride and dignity in caring for my animals, my family, and my community.